Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. We are in the book of Mark. Today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 45. You can find this on page 836 in the Blue Bible and page 994 in the Red Bible. As you're turning there, we also offer Caruso Kids Zone, which is an opportunity for kids ages 5 to 5th grade to go out into the narthex and uh, they'll learn uh, about that question answer that we did today, that question answer about what is prayer. It was such a short answer, but so filled with truths. And so as the children come back in, I would encourage you all after the service, particularly parents, but everybody to ask them, what did they learn about prayer? What did they talk about? How did they go deeper on that question and answer? Also want to remind you to check our bulletin. This has all of our upcoming events, the things that are going on, the ways to get in touch with us, and the ways that you can plug in as well. Once you've gotten to Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 45, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 45, but right now I'm only going to read from verse 16 to verse 20. Mark chapter 1, verse 16 and 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Father, we thank you for this text, this large section that we're going to cover today. We pray that you would help us to understand, to be able to comprehend what it is that's going on here, that we would hide the truths of the gospel and the the scriptures in our hearts And that we'd be able to work out through our hands the way that you want us to live according to what you teach us here. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are looking at the book of Mark. This is our second week in the book of Mark. Uh, We are looking at Mark and calling it Discipleship According to Jesus. We're going to be looking at who Jesus was, his life and how he discipled, how he brought people to understand who he is. But before we do that, as always, context is? Yes, I love that. I love that you say that and that you know that. Sometimes I'm going to just mix it up in the middle of the sermon to make sure you're paying attention. Context is king. And so what is our context? Well, being our second week in, it might be something that you haven't quite memorized yet. Uh, Mark, the book, is the shortest synoptic gospel. Now, synoptic is one of the three that overlap, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Many of their stories overlap and match. John is also a gospel, but it has more of a focus on the I am statements of Jesus. And so Mark is the shortest synoptic gospel. And as one commentator put it, the purpose of Mark is to present Jesus's universal call to discipleship. And in that context, what he means is discipleship is the life-giving relationship that we have with Jesus Christ resulting in godly conduct. 
And so we see that life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ that results in godly conduct in Jesus' disciples in the book of Mark, and then that plays itself out as we become disciples of other people, but ultimately our faith in Christ. The audience of the book of Mark was Gentile Christians, those who didn't necessarily have a background in lots of the, the Jewish traditions in the Old Testament. The uh, Gospel of Matthew leans more on that, talking more about the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament because it's addressing a Jewish audience, but Mark is more of a, a Gentile audience. In fact, I heard it described once as the gospel that was written for Roman centurions, Roman soldiers who, you know, soldiering was their life. They weren't academically oriented and they didn't have the Jewish history, but they were able to understand the book of Mark and what it calls them to. And so far, last week, what we saw was John the Baptist preparing the way. We saw Jesus baptized and commissioned all three persons of the Godhead there. The Father saying, this is the Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit descending on him like a dove. And then he's immediately sent out into the wilderness and tested and comes right out of that testing and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So we've set the stage for what Jesus' ministry is going to be. We've set the stage for who Jesus is and what he's going to be doing. And this first half of Mark, this first section of Mark that we're going to be looking at all the way through uh, around chapter 8 is how Jesus calls, appoints, and send out, sends out his disciples while demonstrating his authority over sickness, nature, and demons. And so we're going to start talking about that today. Jesus models discipleship that includes a God-dependent Christ-likeness, and he is affirming his own authority by healing, casting out demons, and showing his authority over nature. So before we dive into this section of verses, uh, I want to ask a question. So if you receive money, maybe in an inheritance or something like that, and you want to invest it, you want it to, to last a long time, who do you ask? Do you ask a person that has never invested and saw a YouTube video, or do you ask a well-established investor who has made money and understands how the markets work? This is not a hard question. We ask the well-established investor who has the authority, Right? Okay, well, same thing if you're in your house and you're doing you know, some kind of electrical work or something that's not in your field if you're an electrician, and, and you need to finish maybe your basement. Do you ask somebody, do you hire somebody with no experience who's like, yeah, I'll just watch a YouTube video on how to do that? Or do you hire a licensed and uh, uh, bonded, experienced contractor who knows what they're doing, knows the problems they could run into and things like that? Now, ideally, you would hire the contractor because then your house wouldn't burn down. I know some of us like to go the YouTube route, but the answer to the question that I'm asking is the experienced one with authority. We want people who will help us and train us and teach us who know what they're talking about. Now, this goes especially for people who are going to train us in godliness. We don't want to sit under pastors and teachers and others who don't know who God is. We want to make sure that they are pointing us back to his word, the only truth for faith and life. We want to make sure that we see these things in their life. Now, they're going to make mistakes and things like that, but we want to trust people who lean on God's word, who have authority. Do they know what they're talking about? Do they have authority? 
And so as we continue to look at Mark and we see Jesus beginning his ministry, we're going to see that he has authority. And we're going to see what his primary purposes on coming to earth were. And so we're going to look at that today in verses 16 through 45. So we're going to look at Christ's purpose and Christ's proof. Christ's purpose and Christ's proof. So let's start by looking at Christ's purpose. Why did Jesus come? Now we know that Christ is going to die for our sins, and we know that that's how the gospel ends, and that is the ultimate uh, goal of his life. But while he is living, as he is ministering, what does he want to do? Why is he here? And we see that there are two main things that he does in his life here, two main purposes that he has, teaching and preaching the masses and discipling a few. He's going to disciple a few, the ones we know as the disciples, but he's also going to teach and preach to the masses. We see this at the Sermon on the Mount. We see this at the feeding of the 5,000. Those are his two main goals, and we see him begin that here in this section. He begins in verses 16 through 20 by calling his first disciples to disciple a few people. At the start of Jesus's ministry, after he's commissioned and tested, he starts on the shores of Galilee, which, by the way, we're going to be on the shores of Galilee all the way to chapter 8. Many of his miracles occur on these shores. All the way through the middle of chapter 8, he'll be in Galilee, and he starts his ministry by calling four men in verses 16 through 20. Four men to be his disciples. Four men to follow him. Now, he calls them in a manner and that is very different. Very different from what is normally going on when you're trying to follow a rabbi. And not only that, but it is both situational and linguistically similar to the way that Elijah called Elisha. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah called Elisha to come and follow him. And in the same way, Jesus does that to his disciples. But this was odd in the ancient Near East. This was odd in this setting because normally the students chose the rabbi. The students would say, here's my different options for people to learn from. I'm going to go to this one because of their focus. And when the student chose the rabbi, they chose the rabbi with the purpose and intent of becoming teachers like that rabbi. Jesus is very different. Instead of letting people come to him and choose him, he calls them. And he calls them with even more authority and urgency than Elijah called Elisha. He's modeling it off of that, and, and the Jewish people who are listening to this would hear that call because he uses similar words, but he's doing it with even more urgency and even more authority than Elijah had when he called Elisha. He calls these four men, and he's going to call eight more, not only to learn to teach, but to follow and to make disciples. So the traditional path that you went, if you wanted to learn, was you chose the teacher, and the goal of learning from that teacher was then to become one yourself. Jesus, Jesus calls the people out. And he says not, I'm going to make you teachers like me. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. The goal of following Jesus is to become fishers of men. They were called to rescue people from their sin, not catching them for judgment. 
Christ is calling a broken people back to our designed purpose. Psalm 84 says we are called to walk uprightly with God. And so when Jesus begins his ministry, he's doing it very different from everybody around him. All the established people that had been doing it, teacher or student chose the teacher to become just like the teacher. Jesus calls his disciples and makes them fishers of men, not just teachers. And what does it mean to be a fisher of men? It means to draw somebody in, to rescue them from their sin, to call them back to their created purpose. We see in the gospel that on our own, there's no way that we can become perfect. There's no way that we can make up for the sin that we commit. There's no way that we can be made right in the eyes of God in our own effort. But through the work of Jesus and trusting in him, his life, death, and resurrection, we can claim the promises of God as his adopted sons and daughters. When sin entered the world in Genesis, it broke us. And now, through the gospel, Jesus is calling us to come back together. Susan, will you put up that picture for me? The Japanese have an art form. You see these bowls. Uh, they were broken bowls that have been repaired. This art form is called kintsugi, which poetically translates to golden journey or golden joinery. It's a centuries-old Japanese art of fixing broken pottery. Rather than rejoining the pieces together with a camouflage adhesive, this technique employs a special tree sap lacquer dusted with powdered gold, silver, or platinum. Once completed, beautiful seams of gold glint in the conspicuous cracks of the ceramic wares, giving a one-of-a-kind appearance to each repaired piece. This unique method celebrates each artifact's unique history by emphasizing its fractures and breaks instead of hiding or disguising them. In fact, Kintsugi often makes the repaired piece even more beautiful than the original, revitalizing it with a new look and giving it a second life. This is what the gospel does to us. We are broken pieces as we see elsewhere in Scripture, broken cisterns that can hold no water. But through faith in Jesus Christ and his life, he takes our brokenness, which is all different, all unique, all special. No two pieces are the same. We're broken in different ways, and sin affects us in different ways, and he repairs it. That gold in these ceramic bowls is like the love of Jesus drawing us back together into our perfected state so that we can do what we were created to do and walk with God in the garden. This is why our gospel stories, our testimonies are so beautiful because it's just like this. We say we once were shattered pieces of pottery having no purpose, no ability to do anything. But through faith in Jesus, he repaired us and made us even more beautiful than we could ever be. This pottery, to me, is a beautiful example of what Jesus does in the gospel. Every single piece is different. Every single piece is unique. But every single piece is made beautiful 
and whole again, able to fulfill its purpose. This is what the gospel does to us. It takes a broken and sinful person and restores us back into relationship with God and back to our purpose so that here on earth we can demonstrate the beauty and the glory of God. People see that we're broken, but they also see that Jesus has repaired us, has fixed us, has brought us together again so that we can fulfill the purpose for which we were called. Discipleship is a call to a life-giving relationship with Christ as fishers of men. Discipleship is a call back to our purpose. Broken vessels repaired by Jesus to fulfill his gospel. Jesus starts his ministry by calling a few and pouring deeply into them so that then they can do the same, and they can do the same, and they can do the same. And the gospel repairs them for this gospel ministry. So one of the purposes of Jesus as he comes to us in Mark is to pour into a select few people, repairing them and helping them to bring the gospel to others. And his other purpose is to teach and preach to the masses. He doesn't want to just pour into 12 and that's it. He does that, but he also teaches and preaches to the masses. Christ comes primarily to teach and preach. And we know this because he says over and over and over again, I come to teach and to preach. He comes to teach and to preach to large groups of people, seeking to draw people to the Lord through the Word, seeking to repair their cracks, seeking to make them whole again in light of the Lord. Look at verse 21 and 22 with me. And then, and they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The Gospel of Mark refers to Jesus 12 times as a teacher. The Gospel of Mark never refers to Jesus as a miracle worker or a healer or a caster out of demons. His primary purpose is to teach, to teach what it takes to make us those vessels again. And even the verb tense here in 21 and 22 helps us to understand because it's this ongoing sense of teaching. Jesus taught and was teaching and would teach. He was teaching everywhere that he went. And again, look at verses 38 and 39. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus' desire is to preach everywhere. You see, in verses 38 and 39, he could have stayed where he was because he had started to gain fame for being one who healed and who cast out demons and who was doing miraculous things. But instead of staying there and sitting on those laurels and being famous, he wants to continue to go around and preach the gospel. He wants to move throughout the area, and show people what the gospel is and how it fixes us, just like those bowls. Jesus' purpose was to teach and to preach. 
And he did it in two ways. He starts with his disciples, a few men that he pours deeply into so that then they can go and do that. And he calls them out to be fishers of men. But he also preaches and teaches to large crowds as well. So now that we've seen Jesus' purpose to bring his message to both the discipleship of a few and the teaching of many, let's look at Jesus' proof. What gives him the authority? What gives him the power? What gives him the way that he can teach with authority? Why would people listen to Jesus? Some of the things he's saying are not things that the rabbis are saying. And it says that he teaches with authority. But the question we have to ask is, is that all bravado? Is that somebody putting on false confidence? Or does he actually have authority? How do the people know that they should listen to him? He doesn't have a a rabbinic pedigree. He doesn't have somebody that can say, I was taught by this rabbi. Paul does in the New Testament. We see Paul saying, I was taught by this one. I did these things. He gives his whole pedigree, his whole reason for being an educated person. Jesus doesn't have that. So why should people listen to him? Why should people hear these words that he's saying? The answer comes in what he does along with teaching. He doesn't just teach. He also casts out demons and heals So we saw in 29, uh, or rather, we saw that he went into the synagogue and they said, wow, he's teaching with authority. But then look at 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. He cries out. Jesus rebukes him. Jesus casts the demon out. And then we're going to read again and again and again that he heals and casts demons out. He does these two things. He casts out demons. He heals people. He shows his power over nature in order to lend authority so that people will listen to his teaching and preaching. He did not come primarily to heal. He did not come primarily to cast out demons. He did not come primarily to do miraculous works over nature and the like. He came primarily to teach and to preach the gospel, to call us into his presence, to draw us back to him. But by casting out demons, by healing, by having power over nature, he is reinforcing his authority and his ability to teach and preach. These things are not the focus of his ministry, but they reinforce and affirm his authority. He is sent by God. In the Old Testament, Many of the times that we see prophets speak, we see them either uh, having their prophecies come true so that that affirms, or being able to do miraculous things. You think about the plagues in Exodus. God is using Moses to call the people out. How does he prove? How does Moses prove to Pharaoh that he does belong to God? He does all these different things. Now, Pharaoh doesn't always listen, and God even hardens heart hardens Pharaoh's heart against Moses, but those things show the authority that he has. And so when Jesus casts out demons, when Jesus heals, and in the future when we see Jesus have power over nature, those are not his primary purposes. Those just affirm that he's sent by God and we should hear his teaching and preaching. So let's look at these. Verses 23 through 28, he casts out a demon in the temple the temple that he originally went to, to teach and to preach, the temple where they said he was teaching with authority, and then an unclean spirit came. You'll notice, by the way, Mark really likes this word immediately. You're going to see it 42 times. 
Guess how many times it occurs in the New Testament? It's not 42, it's only 54. But 42 of them occur in Mark. So you're going to see this because Mark is trying to give us this sense of immediacy. This is happening. He teaches and immediately there is one who comes in with a demon. So he casts out that demon and he tells that demon to be quiet because what the demon was doing by naming him Jesus was trying to have authority over Jesus and Jesus was having none of that. It was an authority fight by naming Christ and Jesus is like, nope. Then in verses 29 through 31, we see him heal Simon's mother-in-law so that she can continue serving them. Then in 32 through 34, many people appear to be healed. So Jesus casts out this demon after teaching with authority. And so people are starting to hear about who he is. But it's the Sabbath. He goes and he heals Simon's mother-in-law. But again, it's the Sabbath. And then notice how Mark says, at sundown, the whole town comes. Because at sundown, that's the end of the Sabbath, and that's when they can be healed again. And so now he heals many, many different people and casts demons out as well. And then in verses 40 through 45, we see the story of a leper. The leper is healed by Jesus. Jesus touches the leper, which is very unnatural. If somebody is sick, if somebody has leprosy or an illness, you do not touch them because then you become made unclean. But Jesus reaches out and touches the leper. And instead of the leprosy and the uncleanliness coming into Jesus, the holiness and purity of Jesus goes into the leper. Jesus is unique because he's not infected by the sin. Instead, he cures the sickness this situation would have been huge for the Jews because nobody's supposed to touch a leper. In fact, the leper shouldn't have been anywhere near him, but the leper came imploring that he would help. And instead of just saying that he was healed, he touches the leper, cleaning, purifying the leper, healing him from that leprosy. And then Jesus affirms God's commands by saying, go, follow the right procedure, present yourself before the priests so that you can be declared clean. So Jesus is casting out demons and healing while he teaches to affirm, to prove that he has the authority. The healing, casting out demons, and control over nature that we're going to see throughout Mark are not the reasons he came, but instead they are proof of his authority and we see this again look at verse 38 so in 35 36 37 and 38 jesus has gone somewhere else to pray to be quiet to be with the lord and his disciples come looking for him and probably know where he was somewhere that they had been before and they say hey everyone's looking for you okay so he's healed a whole bunch of people and the next day more people are looking for him to heal but instead of staying there instead of gaining more renown by staying there and preach or and healing and casting out demons he says no let's let's go let's move on i want to share this more i am called to teach and to preach the gospel of grace not necessarily to cast out demons and to heal and so he says let's move on Let's go on so that more people might hear the gospel. Now, if he had stayed in that one place, it would have made ministry really hard for him. We can see that in verse 45. He heals the leper. He tells the leper not to talk to anybody and to go to the priest to be made clean. But instead, the leper is overjoyed. 
Listen, his social status is totally changed. He's from an outcast to somebody who can be around people again. He's from feeling weak and, and, and insecure in his physical nature to being strong again. All the things that defined who he was in a negative way are gone, and now he is healed. And so he goes, and he tells everybody he can run to. And what happens? Verse 45, but he went out, and he began to freely talk about it, to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. If you remember last week, we talked about desolate places, the desert, things like that, and how God uses those as places of testing. And so Jesus had to go to those, because if he stayed in the city, he wouldn't be able to move around. So many people would be coming to him for healing and casting out of demons that they wouldn't listen to his teaching and preaching. So he's moving from town to town. This whole section reminds us again and again of Jesus' purpose of teaching and preaching and of his proof of his authority and ability to speak with commanding, to speak with authority, to speak on God's behalf. Now, you're probably sitting there wondering, well, okay, I'm not Jesus. I can't do those things. So you always tell us that we have to apply text to our lives. How can I apply something when I'm not Jesus? And that's a good thought because you're not Jesus. If that's news to you, please come talk to me afterwards. You're not Jesus. We can't cast out demons and heal and do supernatural things like Jesus could do. But we should be, and we are called to be, his disciples. So how do we learn from this text as his disciples, because we're not going to be able to do what he did, but we see his disciples being made. How do we learn from this text as his disciples? So first, we saw Christ call his disciples. And we saw Christ call his disciples to be fishers of men. If you are a believer, you are called to be a fisher of men. You are called to go and to preach this gospel. In Matthew chapter 13, it's describing the kingdom of God. And it says the kingdom of God is like a net cast out into the sea. And it says when you pull the net in, you're going to get good fish and you're going to get bad fish and they will be separated. And so in the same manner, when we are fishers of men and we are casting that net out, we're not casting it out. Mm, they're probably not going to come, so I won't talk to them. They're probably not going to come, so I'm not going to talk to them. You know what? Today I'm just kind of tired, so I'm just not going to talk to anybody. We're, said, we're, we're called to preach the gospel. There will be people in there that don't understand what we're saying. There will be people that will respond poorly. There will be people that will respond positively. Whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do, he will do. But we are still called to be fishers of men. We're not called to just be learned disciples. We're called to be fishers of men. If Jesus had modeled it after the rabbis, all we would be called to be doing is to be learning, and that's it. But Jesus didn't model his ministry after the rabbis. Jesus modeled his ministry after Elijah. He calls us through the Holy Spirit and tells us that we are going to be fishers of men. We're not meant just to learn. We are meant to learn, but we're also meant to be fishers of men. So whether you are blessed to catch fish or not, you are still called to fish. If you're a fisherman, I'm sure you have had days where it doesn't matter how many times you throw that line out, it doesn't matter what bait you use, it doesn't matter how fancy your boat looks, it doesn't matter 
what you're doing, the fish just aren't biting. But that doesn't mean you stop. You don't cast your reel out once and go, whoop, I didn't get a fish. Well, I'm done. I'm just going to sit in the boat for the next four hours. You keep casting. You keep trying. You keep putting it out there. We're called to be fishers of men. Even when people don't bite, we are being obedient. So the question we have to ask ourselves is if we are called to be just Jesus' disciples, which if you're a believer, you are, and if we are called to be fishers of men, which if you're a believer, you are, who are you sharing the gospel with? Who are you casting towards? Who are you praying for and speaking to? Where you live, work, study, and play. Start with one person. Start with one area. Live, work, study, or play. You're gonna, you, I'm going to focus on my neighborhood, or I'm going to focus on my job, or I'm going to focus on my school, or I'm going to focus on my gym or restaurant or whatever. Start with one of those areas and start praying for the people there. Start praying that the Holy Spirit would work in their hearts, that if they are believers, they would grow. If they're not believers, they would yearn for the gospel because they see the vanities of this world. And as you pray for those people, pray also for open doors to talk to them. And when you get the opportunity, don't hold back. You've been praying for them. You've been praying for the opportunity. So when it comes, talk. If they punch you in the face, you've been obedient. We are called to share the gospel, to be fishers of men, where we live, work, study, and play. So start being intentional in one of those areas. Start praying for just one person and looking for opportunities to share with. And as you do that, add another person and another person and another person. But not only are we called to be fishers of men, but I want to I read with us verses 35 through 39 again. This is Jesus. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, that is Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is closer to God than we ever will be. And yet, in verse 35, he does four things. Rises early, departs, goes to a place, and prays. There is an emphasis in this sentence because there are four things that he does. As the Son of God, as the Savior of men, he still cultivates his relationship with the Father and maintains it by being intentional about being with God the Father. If Jesus thinks it's important to be with God the Father, how much more so us who are his disciples? Jesus cultivated his relationship with God. We can also be with God. And we are called to be with God. We are called to draw close to his presence, to know who he is, to speak to him regularly. And we can be with God through time in the word and through prayer. Jesus, recognizing how busy he was, recognizing how in demand he was. Listen, nobody's coming to my house at nine in the morning lining up for things to happen. Jesus knew that was happening and he still gets up early goes and spends time with his Father. Is your life and your free time spent glorifying and pursuing the Lord? 
Are you modeling what Jesus modeled? Whatever age you are, if you can hear my voice right now, Jesus is calling you to be with the Lord through prayer and in the Word. Starts in elementary school, preschool. As soon as we learn to read, we can be reading the Bible and praying. Even if our words aren't fancy or we don't understand everything we're reading, we can be doing that. And that should continue through our whole life where we're being with the Lord. If Jesus can find time in his schedule in the three short years that he had on this earth to get up early and spend with God, surely we can too. I talked to so many people all across my ministry ever since I was in college who have said, I don't have time. And, and honestly, that's not true. I don't care how busy your life is. I don't care how many hours you work. You can make time for the Lord. You are choosing not to. Jesus chose to make time for the Lord. We also have to make that choice. Do you read the word daily? Look, it doesn't have to be like 80 chapters. Read one section. The, the Bible has... Uh, uh, the, the sections divided with, with headings. These are not inspired headings. Jesus calls the first disciples. That's not in the original word. That's just to help us to read easier. Just pick one of those sections. Just read those few short verses and ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand what is it that Jesus did here? How is Jesus speaking to me? What do I need to pull from this? How am I being convicted in this? Help me to understand this so that I can better understand who Jesus was and how that applies to my life. That's all you have to do. And prayer is something you can do no matter where you are. If you're in a meeting that has nothing to do with you, you can pray. Now, that doesn't mean you're sitting in the meeting. You stand up and you go, oh, Father, I pray that you would bless these people. No, you, know, you can pray quietly. You can pray driving. You can pray with your eyes open, by the way. If you're going to pray driving, please pray with your eyes open. You can pray anytime. And in fact, Paul tells us that we're supposed to pray continuously in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Be joyful always. Pray continuously. Give thanks in all circumstances. If you don't know what to pray for, thank him for whatever's going on. Father, I thank you. I have a full tank of gas. and I don't have to go to the gas station because that place stinks. Great. Father, I thank you that you are glorious and has revealed yourself to me. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the people that you helped me to interact with today. Father, I thank you that I'm feeling well. Pray continuously. Know who God is and spend time with him. Do you read the word daily? Do you pray not just daily, but continuously? Christ, despite people clamoring for his attention, clamoring for his healing, clamoring for him to cast out demons, made time to be with God. You can too. This text, this section of text, these many verses show us that right after Christ is commissioned for ministry, he has the authority and knowledge to back up his teaching. He would be the electrician you would hire if you needed help because he has the knowledge. And when speaking about the Lord, he was the authority and proved that through his ministry. Not just teaching and preaching, but casting out demons, healing, and having power over nature. As we are his disciples, we are broken vessels like those pottery, beautifully redeemed, beautifully drawn back together, and we are called 
to be fishers of men and to spend time with God. That's the simple calling Christ has on our life in this section of text. And that's what he wants you to do. Not just today, not just this week, but for the rest of your life. Be fishers of men and spend time with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it's convicting to think about the fact that Jesus was able to get up early and pray. It's convicting for me because I am one who loves the snooze button all too much. And Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to realize where we are trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in you. Help us to realize where we need to trust in you. Help us to find time not only to be in your word, but to pray. Help us to be fishers of men. Help us to think about the friends that we have. Mothers, fathers, grandfathers, grandparents, grandmothers, neighbors, co-workers, fellow students, teachers, whoever it is who don't know you. Father, help us to start praying for them. To pray that the Spirit would be working in their lives, breaking them down, showing them the vanities of this world. And that they'd be open to hearing from your Scriptures. And Father, give us the words. Whether it's as simple as Romans 6.23 or whether it's as expansive as Ephesians 2.1-10, Father, help us to help people to understand that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves. No matter how hard we work, no matter what we do, it's not up to us. And if we rely on our own efforts, we are hopeless. But you, Father, sent your only Son to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve, to rise again from the grave, defeating death and sitting at your right hand until he comes back. And by having faith in Jesus, by trusting that those things are true, not just intellectually acknowledging that they are true, but really trusting that they are true, we too can be called your sons and daughters. We too can be made fishers of men, and we too are repaired with a beautiful story showing the breaks and the hardships and showing how you, through the gospel, bound us back together created us again for our purpose, and drawing us into your presence. So Father, help us today. Help us this week. Help us for the rest of our lives to not just be fishers of men, but to be with you as well. As we grow in our discipleship, trusting in Jesus, and as we live our lives. In Christ's precious, precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.